Welcome to Logistics Business Conversations, where we talk with key spokespeople in the logistics industry about topical issues. Hosted by Peter McLeod, editor of Logistics Business Magazine. Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, wherever you are, and welcome to the latest Logistics Business Conversations podcast. I'm your host, Peter McLeod, editor of Logistics Business Magazine. Sponsored by Jung Heinrich UK, today's podcast is entitled Energy Usage and Carbon Neutral Supply Chains. It's my great pleasure to introduce to you two guests with tremendous knowledge of the subject of sustainability, particularly within the context of transport and logistics. Firstly, Serene Esiroso, who is a Senior Associate Energy Transition at the Carbon Trust, Serene's work focuses on supporting the development of strategic energy innovation programmes for the UK government. She's a recognised expert in the rapidly growing hydrogen sector and has an in-depth understanding of UK and European hydrogen policy. Hello to you, Serene. Hello, Peter. Thanks so much for having me on. You're very welcome. Serene is joined uh, by Felix Pretterjohn, Senior Consultant for the Carbon Trust and an expert on the topic of transport technologies. In his work at the Carbon Trust, Felix supports organisations to measure and reduce their carbon impact and deliver net zero agendas. Hello to you also, Felix. Hello, Peter. Thanks very much for having me. You're very welcome. Now, moving cargo around the world is a carbon intensive business. The pure nature of globalisation, effectively manufacturing goods in one region and shipping them to customers in another, may result in the consumer paying less but the toll this takes on the environment is rarely considered at the point of purchase. The transport and logistics sector accounts for 24% of global carbon dioxide emissions, a figure the European Environment Agency expects to rise to 40% by 2040. In this podcast, we're going to discuss some of the technologies and strategies companies can use to help drive out carbon from their operations today as they strive to become carbon zero at some point in the future. So I'd like to, uh, perhaps Felix, with you, start by just asking a little bit more about the Carbon Trust, what it is, how does it operate? Yes, yeah, well, the Carbon Trust, we're um, a mission-led organisation, and our main aim is to accelerate the move to a decarbonised future. So we've been in this space working uh, with, with climate pioneers for over 20 years, and we, we're a collaborative organisation. We try and bring businesses and governments and things as financial institutions as well together because we understand this is a collaborative effort um, everyone has their own role to play and we aim to give organizations the confidence that they can um, turn climate ambition into impact so um, serene for logistics businesses carbon consumption is usually concentrated i would say in, in three areas transport and then premises costs such as heat light and energy and finally the operations within the warehouse so what, what sort of strategies can these businesses deploy in each of these areas to help them become more sustainable? Thanks, Peter. It's a great question and a really important one. Um, I think the very, very first thing, which is never the most glamorous or interesting, but actually has a lot to value, uh, sorry, a lot of value to add is energy efficiency. So when you're thinking about your um, warehouse locations, for example, 
do you have automated lights that come on and come off when the warehouse is in use rather than lights that stay on 24 7 do you have the most energy efficient light bulbs in those fixtures if you're storing things at certain temperatures are those temperatures at the correct set point or are they much lower or much higher than they need to be those kinds of things are really easy wins that are quick and you know bring back a lot of value both with regards to energy and financially for um, from an operational perspective um, and then the next thing which is where it starts to get a bit more exciting to most people is thinking about what new technologies you can implement in order to decarbonize your um, operations once you've maximized the energy efficiency uh, options available so that's when you start to think about does it make the most sense for me to electrify what i'm doing or perhaps use hydrogen to decarbonize what i'm doing and you have to think about all of the different bits that make up your system. So as you mentioned in this scenario, it would be the transport that comes to and from the warehouse, the warehouse itself and operations within that warehouse. Um, I'll stop. I could talk about this for a long time, so I'll stop rambling there. <laughs> You're not rambling at all. And then maybe on the sort of we switch towards the um, transport operations, uh, Felix. So um, can, can we ever be fossil free? Uh, fuel, uh, sorry, can we ever use fossil free, free fuel for our transport systems? Is that a reality? Uh, and and if, if so, you know, what are the hurdles we need to uh, overcome that are obstructing us to, to, to get this done in, in the short term? Yeah, I have, I have no doubt that we can have a fossil free transport system. Um, <clears throat> we're very resourceful, inventive people generally. We, we've, we sort of address a lot of the technical challenges and these are well within our capabilities. Um, I mean, if you consider that the two primary technologies for solving this are battery technologies and fuel cells, mm -hmm. and they've been around from 19th century and uh, even to, and then fuel cells mid 20th century. So they've been around for a long time. Um, the major players have been considering them for transport applications um, in a sort of a serious way with serious R&D efforts uh, since the 90s, at least. Um, and so the technical capabilities is clearly there. Um, so I have no issues in getting there. It's how soon we'll get there. Um, and as you mentioned, these hurdles, um, we're looking at essentially the three key hurdles are cost, infrastructure, and uncertainty. So I say uncertainty because there's so many different players um, they all need to to move together, and they're all, everyone's waiting for that sort of uh, opportunity. Somebody else to take the first step. So that's particularly when you look at heavy duty transport. Um, that's the, one of the hardest challenges, and the uncertainty is is what technologies um, do they want to back? And it's a really difficult question. And I think Serene's got a lot to to say on um, systems thinking and how we approach solving the problem. But it's a complex problem. We're not going to have one solution. So uncertainty is. Um, is, is a big challenge, waiting for the, the market to move. Um, but then cost and infrastructure. Now, cost is, is much easier generally. You'll see battery technologies are, are already um, reducing in cost. And if you look at passenger cars, total cost of ownership, they're, they're, they're very competitive. Heavy duty vehicles aren't quite there yet. Uh, there's a bit of a way to go with costs, but we expect this to come down um, pretty, pretty quickly. Um, and then infrastructure, that goes hand in hand with uncertainty. Uh, it takes collaboration to, between uh, public and private finance um, to 
invest in the right infrastructures uh, and that can be a bit of a challenge right and so you're you're, you're uh, intimating that serene has a bit more to say on uh, on the sort of the systems approach <laughs> uh, I, I, I throw throw over to you serene for that please yeah of course i'd be happy to and thanks felix for setting the scene so articulately um so from the systems perspective i mean i love hydrogen i love talking about hydrogen but i think that it's very easy to um, end up in a conversation that's quite binary should we be using hydrogen or should we be using electricity hydrogen should never be used in these use cases and only be used in these use cases and i think actually thinking and speaking in that way is quite detrimental to our ability to really accelerate the transition to net zero because like everything it's never that simple it's never that you know black and white so for example um as felix mentioned when it comes to light vehicles and passenger vehicles from an efficiency perspective there is no doubt that um, battery electric vehicles are the much better option uh, compared to hydrogen fuel cell vehicles however when you start to bring in different uh, characteristics that influence your system such as you know where in the world you are so how much uh, low carbon electricity costs because obviously if you're somewhere where you have a huge renewable resource the cost is going to be much lower than somewhere who perhaps doesn't have as much access to wind and or solar um, also your access to infrastructure if you're in a region that is not well equipped with i mean not that anywhere currently really has a good hydrogen refueling infrastructure but with the battery electric um, refueling infrastructure there's still a lot of work to be done there and that's a big consideration when you're um, investing in your low carbon alternative and then also with what is the policy ambition in the region that you're in so there are some countries which have made very very clear and loud commitments to hydrogen and the role that they want hydrogen to play in their move to net zero and other countries which are still a bit less certain and still trying to work out what hydrogen is going to mean for them so already those are big things that you have to consider all of which you don't really have any control over and then additionally you have to think about what it is that you're trying to do. So Felix and I were talking about this earlier. Um, if you're a one-off passenger, um, like the average person who needs a car to commute to work, then battery electric makes a lot of sense. You can charge your car overnight and then in the morning off you go. Um, but if you're needing a light vehicle, but not necessarily for passenger transport, so for example, if you're sorry if you're needing a light vehicle and you, you've got a fleet so for example if it's police cars or if it's amazon vans or a fleet of taxis whilst the um, electric version might be more efficient you need if you're an amazon van driver you need to maximize your time on the road and the amount of stuff you can carry in your van so batteries tend to be much heavier than the fuel cells that are needed for hydrogen vehicles which takes away some of the payload um, but also 
uh, charging takes a lot longer than refueling with hydrogen, which is much more comparable to traditional fossil fuels. So again, when you start to bring all of those things into your system, the picture looks very different. And if you've got a fleet of vehicles, which all return to the same place, there's no reason why you can't have a, a small scale decentralized um, hydrogen refueling station in that home base. So uh, it's fair to say many of us have lived through the era of vinyl records, through CDs and into digital. And you're, you're wondering, how, how is this uh, relatable to what we're talking about today? <laughs> well, I, I've always had in my mind the thought that um, electric vehicles felt feels like a little bit of an interim technology that sits between um, fossil fuels and a hydrogen future. And so I'm saying that electric vehicles are the CDs of the transport world. And um, I wonder, Felix, whether that's, uh, you know, in an elaborate way to, to sort of say, um, you know, is are we just sitting on electric vehicles um, because it's a, an easy win today uh, whilst we wait for the hydrogen uh, and, and other cleaner fuels uh, of the future to become more commercially viable? No, I, I don't think so. I think particularly, um, as Serena's mentioned, for the majority of passenger cars uh, and the use that they're going to get, battery electric is the best option. Um, it has higher efficiency, which ultimately means lower cost. Um, and also the technology itself um, at the moment is cheaper than hydrogen fuel cells, and it's expected to stay that way for for at least the, the, the near to medium term. Um, so I think electricity is certainly here to stay, or battery electric, sorry, is certainly here to stay. Um, but what you will find as, as the hydrogen infrastructure develops and cost comes down is that the benefits that Serene was talking about might be borne out in certain use cases. Um, it's worth considering as well that battery electric for a lot of even um, light duty and medium, medium duty and even some heavy duty use cases might be feasible. Um, they're talking about catenary trucks, so electric trucks that have uh, essentially overhead charging cables that's being researched, um, and also fast charging stations, battery swapping, all to try and address the issues with um, battery capacity. And we're really trying to find out um, what's the best solution. Is it, is it hydrogen or is it, is it battery, uh, battery electric? So battery electric is certainly here to stay. It's not a stopgap. It's just we've got to sort of get our heads around that the future won't be one technology. It'll be a mixture. And, and in that mixture, we're looking at uh, sustainable fuels or biofuels such as HVO, uh, bioethanol and, and synthetic. Where, where are we uh, currently with the development of those and the availability of those? So development, I mean, I mean, in the, in the UK and many other regions, there's already some, uh, you'll see your petrol has got E5 uh, and E10, uh, depending on the, the source you're getting. And diesel comes with a quantity of biodiesel. Um, so we, we're already there with, with them. The, the the big challenge we have with sustainable fuels is um, su essentially the word sustainable. You have to be very, very quick, careful that they actually are delivering the sustainability benefits because um, done in the wrong way, particularly when you think about deforestation and land use change, um, they can be more harmful than, than using diesel and petrol. Um, so sourcing is incredibly uh, important. And particularly for biofuel, um, but then you look at um, HVO is, is a common um, fuel that's being sort of promoted as sustainable. And it has some 
on paper some very potentially good benefits and if it's done in the right way they can they can be in the reality um, but again it comes down to sourcing so HVO can be created from palm oil um, and this really generates a risk I mean palm oil is a, a relatively well-known um, challenge or issue uh, in the world at the moment um, so if it's sourced from say used cooking oil um, it's generally considered much more sustainable than um, say from palm oil and then also HVO uses hydrogen. So again, with sourcing, you've got to think about, is this hydrogen itself creating emissions? So there's a lot of questions to be answered and sourcing is, is really key when you, when you look at um, biofuels to make sure they really, really are sustainable. It, it seems very fashionable today to uh, criticize the government for almost everything. Um, and I'm just wondering if there's, if, if there's more that maybe UK government or governments across Europe can do to help accelerate the process uh, towards um, zero carbon. Um, what do you think, Serena? Are, are there particular countries that seem to be leading the way? Are others that, that are lagging behind? Yeah, thanks, Peter. It, again, I will share my views, um, which will take into consideration a number of different factors. Um, I think... The challenge with hydrogen is that it's so unlike anything that we've dealt with before. So in when you think about electricity, which of course will be the other energy vector um, that will be used alongside hydrogen in a net zero future. Electricity is ubiquitous. It's used relatively consistently across countries and across the world. The infrastructure is well established. The market is mature. Whilst hydrogen is, of course, also going to be a clean energy vector, that's about where the similarities stop. And then you could think about hydrogen in comparison to natural gas, which, of course, is another energy vector that we're very well versed in. But again, compared to hydrogen, natural gas is much more widespread. Um, the use cases that are used will be very different. Um, and natural gas as a gas behaves very differently to hydrogen. There are different risks associated with it. There are different challenges associated with it. So thinking about the two as a gas, again, is more or less where the similarities stop. And as a result, it's, it's understandable that governments are concerned about picking winners or making concrete decisions before they feel they've got a strong enough evidence base or before they've got the private sector and um, uh, like public consumers behind them. So you can see in some governments, such as the UK government, a lot of care is being taken to really make sure that no use cases are ruled out until they feel confident that everyone who's been able to contribute to the conversation has had an opportunity to, and they've gathered all of the evidence that they need to 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 comfortably say okay we're not doing this we're definitely going to do this on the other hand you see companies uh, countries like germany who from the moment they decided net zero um started thinking about what hydrogen looks like in their in their country context and if you read the german hydrogen strategy it's less of a hydrogen strategy and more of an industrial decarbonization strategy because in germany that's almost exclusively where hydrogen is expected to be used so you can it, there it's it, it's a difficult 
one to, to navigate. There's always more that everyone could do. I think it's we need more um, consumer awareness, more public knowledge about hydrogen. There's only so far system transformation will take us. There's an element of behavior change, but also willingness required as well. Like for the longest time, when you talked about hydrogen, people immediately thought of like explosive disasters and blimps and that kind of thing, which of course is not how we think about or even use hydrogen today. I mean, it's been a big part of um, industrial processes and generating industrial feedstock for decades now. So we, it's been a part of our lives. It's just when we don't know, we're not necessarily aware of it. And now the way in which it will interact with our lives will be different. So a lot needs to be done in order to bring the public on board. And if you think about um, plastics, you when if you look at water bottles now or different containers that you get, a lot of them are proud to say we're made from 100% recycled plastic or and so on. And it's not because necessarily of any legislation that's come through, but rather it's because consumers have demanded that that's what they want. So we can already see the effect of consumers, um, consumers' desires shaping how the private sector moves with or without legislation. But legislation will be important to encourage the people who might have more challenge decarbonizing. It need, it's needed to give them a bit of an incentive and a bit more of a push. Um, and then thinking about government and the private sector, I think one thing that I often am frustrated by is the lack of dialogue between the two. Oft, as Felix mentioned before, we work closely with governments and with the private sector. And often when you talk to one group of stakeholders, they believe that this is their remit and the other group of stakeholders will take over, will take care of the rest. And often those two ideas don't necessarily match up. So there's a lot of work that's needed to be done in order for the private sector and the public sector to have clarity around what they own, to be on the same page as one another, and therefore to be able to move forward with that. We'll return to this edition of Logistics Business Conversations after this short message from our sponsor, Jung Heinrich UK. This edition of the Logistics Business Conversations podcast is sponsored by Jungheinrich UK Limited. In our 60th year, we're proud to be one of the leading intralogistics providers in the UK. From high energy efficiency pallet trucks and stackers to counterbalance trucks, order pickers, mobile robots and more, Jungheinrich offers the industry's widest range of intralogistics solutions. With sustainability at the heart of what we do, check out our automation, racking systems, warehouse planning and financial services. Get in touch. Go to jungheinrich.co.uk to find your solution. Welcome back to Logistics Business Conversations. I'm your host, Peter McLeod, and I'm joined today by Serene Esiroso and Felix Pretijon of the Carbon Trust. Felix, what can businesses do today to, to, to make a difference to their carbon consumption and, and what sort of tools are available now to help them to achieve a reduction in carbon consumption? Um, I mean, we've, we've talked so far about how they have to consider their options quite carefully. And then when we say consider, the most important thing to do is, is to measure and manage to start with. So you, you need to do the footprinting. You need to do the analysis. You need to understand where you stand today. Um, and so I think measuring, verifying the footprint uh, are all very important things to do. 
once you've set a baseline and you know where you are, you can then plan your interventions. So um, <clears throat> we, su we support clients with, with doing this measurement and then looking at, okay, how do we uh, implement or what can we implement to reduce these uh, emissions and then start analyzing the effect of those different, um, yeah, the different interventions you can have and looking at it from a cost basis, from an emissions basis, and also feasibility considering the, the, the operations that they have. So it all starts with sort of measurement and analysis, and then you can bring that information into your own um, unique situation considering all the, the system, the, um, uh, yeah, the system impacts that um, Serene was discussing earlier on, you might consider local policies and what infrastructure you have. Um, if I was to switch my previously diesel fleet of lorries to electric, uh, am I just creating carbon emissions elsewhere? Um, for example, where, the en where that energy is being generated? Um, that is a that is a common um, sort of generally misconception, and it's it, I mean it certainly used to be true um, in uh, in a few years ago when grids hadn't decarbonized. Generally, uh, on a global average, it, it's not true. But in certain regions, there are um, with high carbon intensities um, that can be the case. I mean, there's some um, reports from 2020 uh, showing that in Europe, um, as an average, and in across all countries individually, um, they are significantly cleaner to use electric vehicles. Even countries like Poland, which have a high carbon intensity due to their um, energy sourcing, um, it still is actually beneficial to have electric vehicles. So it's a it's an old uh, trope or myth that is just sort of because of previously high carbon intensity grids that is slowly being dispelled. And Serene, before the break, we were uh, talking a little bit about legislation. Is, is, is it legislation that's forcing the biggest changes in attitude towards sustainability? Or is it, uh, are you seeing it sort of coming more from the, the consumers, particularly the younger consumers who are demanding uh, greener solutions? Yeah, it's an excellent question. And to be honest, I think the answer is a bit of both. Um, so I remember years ago when the net when chris skidmore signed in the net zero legislation and suddenly uh sustainability and net zero was much higher on everyone's agenda because prior to that um we had a target to reduce emissions by 80 percent and so lots of the harder to decarbonize uh, use cases such as heavy goods vehicles shipping aviation industry and so on felt that it, because it was so much more challenging to decarbonize those they could like carry on as they were in the 20 percent that would still be allowed with the 80 percent reduction but once net zero came into effect, and obviously the UK was the first country to do that, uh, suddenly all of those conversations in those different areas, which I'm sure you can attest to more than me, um, they all changed. And instead of, you know, how can we continue as we are to keep within that 20%, it, came, what, it became what do we have to do to change our operations in order to be a net zero um, operation? And once the UK did it, I think it was a bit like Felix was talking about earlier, when uh, people wait for someone else to do it first, and then as soon as someone's done it, then everyone feels okay to do it. So we can see now in the last few years, there's been 
a huge amount of activity with lots of other countries and even organizations signing up to um, commit themselves to net zero targets by various dates. But then on the other hand, when you think about the effect of the public, I mean, because as you mentioned at the start, Peter, we are in an increasingly uh, connected world. I mean, the world is constantly getting smaller as there are advances in technology with regards to transport, but also information exchange. It means that much more people are plugged into and aware of the challenges that we're facing um, as a global society with regards to our environment and climate change. And so as a result, it could be argued that the net zero legislation was signed because the government could see that there was a much greater demand for it from the public. Um, so you can definitely see the effect that both of those different groups of stakeholders have had to get us to where we are now. And uh, as a consumer, um, it's quite difficult to it's quite difficult to make a, 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 a green choice because we are subjected to greenwashing. Um, how, how, how do we identify greenwashing and, and how do we call it out when we do identify it? Um, I think it's important not to jump to conclusions. I think you, you need to base any sort of claim or any um, criticism on, uh, I guess, yeah, scientific or, or science-based evidence. So, the, for example, at the Carbon Trust, we will certify organisations um, and their products um, so that they can use they can use our different um, labels, for example, to demonstrate that they are they're doing well. But consumers can look for labels like that, or they can they can look for SBTIs, companies um, model their emissions and work out strategies to achieve a target. So if they've set their SBTI, they're certainly um, trying to act in the right way and have ambitions and plans to, to do so. Um, and the, we actually do a, a certification called Route to Net Zero, which um, goes a bit further than just uh, analyzing whether their emissions are now. It's looking at how, what plans they have um, to, to reduce their emissions. Do they have the, uh, the setup? to to enable those emissions reductions are they engaging their supply chain their staff those kind of things so i think if, if you're considering uh making an accusation or something like that i think and to call out it's a really good thing to do but do make sure it's based on um some uh, third-party verification or some evidence based on the company you're looking at and, and I suppose it's fair to say that a, a company that um, has efficient green operations, um, which means you know less less energy input, less carbon use, less waste, um, will also be uh, a profitable, hopefully a profitable uh, business. But um, what, what would you suggest are the implications to a business that um, disregards its impact on the environment? Um. I mean, there's there's a, a lot of risks. I think for for not disregarding, uh, sorry, for for not paying attention to or for disregarding it. Um, if you think in terms of legislation, there's already a lot of environmental legislation in place. Um, there looks set to be more, um, depending on the region you're in. You either <clears throat> might be quite advanced already, or, or it's certainly coming. Um, equally, from the consumers, um, 
businesses are, are pushing supply their supply chains to become more efficient uh, and selecting suppliers uh, based upon that. Um, this has all come from consumers. Um, businesses are trying to get ahead of uh, consumer pressure and legislation pressure. So the risks are that you you won't be able to operate in certain regions, um, and your your um, your customers uh, will, will won't select you as a supplier. Um, now we're reaching the end of our podcast, and I, I want uh, uh, um, Serene. I want you to get your crystal ball out, if you don't mind. Mm. <laughs> um, you're, uh, you're a hydrogen expert, so maybe maybe you can just tell us some of the exciting technologies that are coming through uh, that businesses could have an eye on uh, over the next few years. Oh gosh, that oh that's a really tricky one, Peter. And not because my crystal ball isn't working, but rather because there's just so much that could be considered. I mean, I touched earlier on how hydrogen has been a big part of our society, whether we've been aware of it or not, for many years now. Um, but of, in the context that I was describing, hydrogen has been used almost industri- almost exclusively as an industrial feedstock, which means that it's been used in a lot of food and drink processing, in a lot of steel manufacturing, uh, oil refining, and so on. Um, but now we're shifting our interaction with hydrogen from thinking about it as an industrial feedstock to thinking about it as an energy vector, which was much wider spread across um society. So a lot of the knowledge that we have on hydrogen has been taken from our previous experiences and reapplied to this new uh, use that we're trying to, to use hydrogen in. But obviously hydrogen as an industrial feedstock is very different from hydrogen as an energy vector. There's a lot more scale needed. There's many more value case, uh, sorry, many more value chains considered there's it suddenly becomes a much more complicated question so then there's also the question why does that mean that what we've done so far for industrial feedstock is what we will be doing in the future when we think about it as an energy factor the sheer scale alone already puts into question some of the some of the things that we do so for example we are talk when we talk about clean hydrogen we are almost exclusively talking about blue hydrogen, so hydrogen from natural gas with the, the CO2 captured at the end of the process, or green hydrogen, which is hydrogen made from renewable electricity. And depending on who you ask, uh, pink hydrogen, which is hydrogen made from uh, nuclear energy. But there are so many new innovative uh, solutions for hydrogen production coming out of the woodwork. So just the other day, I was talking to an SME who have found a new way to produce hydrogen from biomass, which is a very, the, the process they use is very similar to the process used for green hydrogen, but it requires a lot less energy. Um, so who's to say that in 10 years time, they won't be one of the dominant uh, production methods for hydrogen and then across the entire hydrogen value chain so production all the way across storage distribution um, and through to the end use there's so much innovation coming through but I think actually 
what's more exciting than the technologies coming through is the opportunities to do business in a different way. So because there's so much that we need to achieve in getting hydrogen to scale between now and 2030 and then again to 2050, we have to think about how we do that in a different way than what we've been doing previously. And ultimately, we will need to collaborate, which can feel quite unintuitive for businesses. But because there is so much to achieve in the common areas, so for example, the storage solutions that we'll be using for hydrogen need to have some level of standardization, the pumps, the compressors, I mean, I won't bore you with a long list, but there's a lot that needs to be done to get alignment. Um, And in order to achieve that alignment in a timely way, businesses have to come together and agree um, and find what that common ground is. So that's why I'm, I personally am very excited for this time in hydrogen. I'm excited about what we're doing at the Carbon Trust, which is developing joint industry programs to help businesses do exactly that. And we're hopeful that we will be able to have a huge impact moving the hydrogen sector forward in a similar way to we've been able to do in other sectors using the same approach. Well, I have to say, um, Serene, Felix, uh, I've enjoyed our conversation today. Thank you very much um, for joining me. Um, But the clock is ticking remorselessly as it does. And it brings us to the end of this edition of Logistics Business Conversations. So thank you both very much for your contribution. To find out more about the work undertaken by the Carbon Trust, please visit carbontrust.com. And also, I'd like to say a big thank you to the sponsor of this podcast, Jung Heinrich UK. Look out for the next edition of Logistics Business Conversations wherever you get your podcasts. Until then, it's goodbye from me. Goodbye. Goodbye.